0: This is Christian Knutsen and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A proposal that would make it harder for criminal defendants to be released on bail is on track to appear on the spring ballot. That's after the state Senate voted today in their first meeting this session. The Senate approved the measure, with two Democrats joining 21 Republicans in voting for it, while nine Democrats voted against it. The proposal was approved by the state legislature last session sparked by the Waukesha Christmas parade killings. The Capital Times reported that legal experts and opponents of the measure to limit cash bail say it would disproportionately affect poor people. After passage by the State Senate, the measure is slated ahead to the Assembly this Thursday. If approved there, the proposal could appear on the ballot this April. If that process sounds atypical for lawmaking, That's because the proposal is a constitutional amendment. If the proposal appears on the ballot this spring and a majority of voters approve it, the measure would become enshrined in the Wisconsin Constitution. This proposal is one of several amendments this year that are on track to head to the legislature and then on to voters. Also today, Senate Republicans voted to advance a constitutional amendment proposal that would ask voters about requiring work requirements for government assistance, reports the Associated Press. Other constitutional amendment proposals could be added to your ballot as well. According to the League of Women Voters, those proposals would curb voter eligibilities, restrict the use of private money in funding elections, and limit the governor's authority to use federal funds.
1: Meanwhile, the Republican-controlled legislature rejected a push from their Democratic colleagues and Governor Tony Evers to add a different referendum to the spring ballot. This one would ask voters whether Wisconsin's 1849 ban on abortion should be repealed. The legislature rejected that proposal. Meanwhile, Evers and Attorney General Josh Call continue their push in the courts to challenge Wisconsin's abortion ban. Today, they filed a new brief in their ongoing lawsuit asking a Dane County judge to not dismiss the case after the Sheboygan County District Attorney filed a motion last month to do so. The lawsuit was originally filed last summer after a U.S. Supreme Court struck down abortion protections. Evers told reporters today he believes the lawsuit will be successful, reports the Cap Times.
0: And in even more news from the state capitol, Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemihue, a Republican from Oostburg, is circulating a bill to introduce a plan for a flat income tax. This proposal would phase in an across-the-board 3.25% state income tax rate by the year 2026. That says the news over Wisconsin's nearly $7 billion state budget surplus has become a political football. Republicans have signaled that they'd like to use the extra money to initiate a flat income tax rate. Lemieux says this change would help the Wisconsin businesses and would calibrate the rate to be more in line with neighboring states. Evers said the proposal would benefit the wealthy and that he'd block the move, reports the Associated Press. Evers has suggested other uses for the state surplus, including more funding for school districts and shared revenue for municipalities. The flat tax bill is slated to be introduced next week.
1: U.S. Representative Glenn Grothman, a Republican who represents Wisconsin's 6th Congressional District northeast of Madison, hung a new flag outside his Washington, D.C. office. The flag, which displays a pine tree in the words, An Appeal to Heaven, has ties to a Christian nationalism sect implicated in the planning of the January 6th insurrection. Grothman tweeted an image of himself and the flag outside his office last Friday. Urban Milwaukee reports Grothman did not respond to a request for comment.
0: A controversial plan to change residential zoning in Madison is on the agenda for tonight's City Council meeting. This proposal would loosen zoning rules and allow for higher density housing close to the bus rapid transit routes that are slated to launch in June. The plan, called Transit Oriented Development or TOD, would help create more density around these routes. It would allow single-family units to be developed into duplexes. It would also adjust zoning in these areas so buildings could be built closer to the street, among other changes. The plan originally excluded historic districts from the zoning changes. But now, with the sign-off of two powerful city bodies, the plan could affect three historic districts, University Heights, Third Lake Ridge, and Marquette Bungalows. Tonight's City Council meeting begins at 6.30. You can watch the meeting live online at cityofmadison.com.
1: And with the spring primary headed our way in about a month, followed by the spring election in April, it's not too early to start thinking about voting. The Madison Clerk's office is encouraging voters who want to vote absentee by mail to request their ballots now. To request your absentee ballot, go to myvote.wi.gov. And now on to today's top stories.
0: Later this week, the Dane County Board of Supervisors will decide whether or not to put the question of borrowing funding needed to build a new jail before voters. Earlier today, Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett joined past sheriffs to push the board to place a referendum about the issue on the April ballot. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has more.
2: It's an antique that probably more rightly belongs as part of a museum than as a place to house uh, inmates. That's former Dane County Sheriff Gary Hamblin talking at a press conference today to urge the Dane County Board to ask voters whether or not to approve the needed funding to build a new county jail. The current county jail, primarily located above the City County Building in downtown Madison, was first built in 1953 and contains no medical or mental health beds. Current Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett has railed against the conditions in the jail since he was first appointed in 2021. He's repeatedly called the conditions within the jail inhumane, unsafe, and borderline unconstitutional. The county has debated whether or not to build a new jail for decades, and last year, multiple plans went before the Dane County Board to build a new one. But the cost to build a new jail has jumped by at least $10 million, with inflationary pressures causing labor and material costs to rise. The Dane County Board has remained split over whether to approve the additional costs. In 2022, supervisors have gone back and forth over a variety of proposals to add additional funding or change the design of the jail. Meanwhile, Barrett says that the board is not going to come to a consensus on how to move forward with the project by themselves. There
3: are 37 Dane County board members, which means there are 37 different narratives, 37 different ideas, 37 different groups of constituents. And I, too, agree with the words of a member of our actual own Dane County Black Caucus who said less than 10 months ago that it's difficult to make a decision with 37 different individuals. That's why it needs to go to the people.
2: Sheriff Barrett and three other former county sheriffs met at the public safety building to urge county supervisors to put the issue to voters this April. Today's press conference comes days before the Dane County Board will decide whether to approve a resolution to add the question to the spring ballot. Specifically, it would ask Dane County voters whether the county should borrow an additional $13.5 million to build a six-story jail with no more than 825 beds. Barrett was joined in today's press conference by Rick Ramish, Gary Hamblin, and Dave Mahoney, all former sheriffs who are calling the current Dane County jail unsafe for everyone involved in addition to closing down the current jail above the city county building sheriff barrett says that the new facility would allow the jail to remove solitary confinement cells add medical and mental health beds and have programming space to teach jail residents life skills once they are released
3: right now we are limited in our programming space classrooms where we can educate and empower those who are incarcerated and provide them with the skills they need to be successful when they transition back into the community. We do not have enough space.
2: Former Sheriff Mahoney echoed Barrett's comments, saying that without programming space, they only set up those released from the jail for failure.
0: That if we want reforms that end the cycle of incarceration, we must address providing programs to end the core fundamental reasons people come into the criminal justice system.
2: Hamblin pointed to the fact that the county is shipping jail residents to other counties due to the fact that parts of the current jail are unusable. He says that not only is this costing Dane County thousands of dollars, but it isn't fair to the people being sent to other county jails. The people that are being housed in the facilities pay the price because they can't have visitation. How easy is it for somebody to visit someone that's incarcerated if they have to take an inner-city bus? Which by the way does not go to rhinelander um, and get up there and, and do some type of a visit it's impossible sheriff barrett has been calling for the board to come to a decision on the dane county jail since he took office in 2021 but took a harsher tone at today's press conference accusing some supervisors who he would not name of intentionally sabotaging the plans to build a new jail
3: certain members of the county board have shown a lack of empathy and comprehension of research and evidence leading to intentional delay tactics that place lives at risk and is irresponsible with taxpayer dollars.
2: Last year, the Dane County Sheriff's Office began offering tours of the current Dane County Jail to the public, and former Sheriff Ramish encourages anyone with doubts about the new jail to take a tour for themselves. And if at the end, You can look somebody in the eye and say, I wouldn't mind if my father or my mother or my brother or my sister my son or my daughter spent time there, then vote against the jail. But I guarantee you, nobody will be able to walk through that and say that I wouldn't mind if my relatives spent time there. Even with the full endorsement of four past and current county sheriffs, Board President Patrick Miles says that it is unlikely that the resolution to put the question on the ballot would pass on Thursday. The resolution has been shot down by three county committees because, Miles says, the $13.5 million that would be approved may not be enough.
4: The design work is moving forward on the six-story design of the project. The architects will be finishing those designs uh, later this month and then come right around sometime in March. We should get the uh, final cost estimates once the ninety-five percent construction design document phase is complete and so at this point it's premature to say that we need 13 and a half million dollars to complete the project.
2: The board will decide whether or not to put the question of funding the jail on the ballot at their next meeting this Thursday. That meeting begins at 7 p.m. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate How.
1: Last week, we began our coverage of the primary election for the District 4 Alder seat located in the heart of downtown Madison. Today, we continue our coverage with Samantha Givich, a UW-Madison student and one of three candidates running for the seat. Givich spoke with WRT producer Nate Weggiehout about why she decided to run for Alder.
2: The 2023 spring primary election is on February 21st, and this year there will be seven districts with at least three candidates running for an alder seat, all of which will require a primary election. One of those districts is District 4. That district sits at the heart of downtown, containing the Capitol Square down to Regent Street and parts of John Nolan Drive. Samantha Givich is one of the three candidates running in the February primary and joins me now by phone. Samantha, thank you, so much for talking with me today.
4: Thanks for having me.
2: So just to begin, Samantha, tell me a little bit about yourself.
4: Um, I'm a currently a student at UW-Madison, expected to graduate in the spring of 24. I grew up in Milwaukee, and my parents are originally from Utah, and we moved back here my freshman in high school. But I guess I just loved Wisconsin so much, I came back to Madison for school.
2: And what are you going to school for, Samantha?
4: Currently, my major is political science with certificates in public policy and gender women studies. Uh, Certificates at UW-Madison are just essentially minors.
2: And now, why are you running for the older seat in District 4?
4: My goals in life, I mean, uh, I want to be a politician, uh, possibly career, but I may go a different route. I'm very interested in policy, but also I love Madison. I thought it was a good opportunity and we always need new people in politics. So I was just really excited that there was an election this year.
2: And have you ever held any type of elected office previously?
4: No, I have not. As uh, my experience, as far as I do work at the state capitol as an assembly messenger at the sergeant at arms, which is a nonpartisan office. It serves the entire Wisconsin state assembly. And I also have worked on a campaign before. I also coach youth basketball. If anybody's kids or anything, um, go to school at Madison School District for their recreation programs on Saturday.
2: And Samantha, what do you do in your spare time? What do you do when you're not uh, studying or working in the
4: Capitol? Um, I'm very into health, and I also want to promote that in Madison. Um, I work out a lot. I play basketball in high school, and I coach. I also, as far as politics go, I did – During the, before Roe v. Wade was overturned, I participated in some of those protests and I try and be involved as much as possible. I enjoy most things, but yeah, I'm pretty active and just like spending time with people and trying new things.
2: Now, turning to Madison, what are some of the most pressing issues facing the city that you would want to address?
4: Currently, the housing situation is the biggest issue, I think, that affects the most amount of people in the city of Madison students and residents alike, because there's a shortage as people are probably aware of and prices are kind of going through the roof. But we also want to keep developments going and keep the interests of businesses in the city. But we also don't want residents to go bankrupt over housing costs.
2: And now I want to get into that a little bit as well as a few other issues, but let's start with housing. You know, District 4 has a lot of students living in that district. What sort of key initiatives would you like to see here in Madison to bring more affordable housing in?
4: So they actually, the city has done uh, the work already to find out what really is the affordable price and it kind of chalks out to be about $600 per person. And with that, that's pretty low, uh, especially with the new buildings coming in, and they're quite expensive to build developments. And I think with any policy, when you're approaching it, you want to merge interest because most people want the same things. It's just how you go about it. That's different. Current, uh, their solution at the moment is just putting affordable units in the new developments. Um, the one near my building on Gorham currently does have a lot of units that are affordable, just... Their measure of affordability is $800 per person right now, which probably needs to be brought down. But I think we just need to work with the companies so they don't lose money, but that people don't have to be paying, you know, $800 to, in some buildings I was seeing like $1,900 per person a month, which just is not affordable for most students and residents.
2: Now let's turn over to transit. As we know, bus rapid transit is set to be taking into effect later this summer. How do you feel about that and uh, bus rapid transit?
4: So I was looking at the routes and currently the, the routes seem to just not be going the places people are going. And those are the most important things. And the bus system just needs to be serving the people that are using it. And I think we just need to Work around, like form a committee and find out where people are going, when they're going, and work with the bus system to make a better plan. Especially um, students going into campus and out of campus, it seems that it's going to be just too far, <laughs> too much time to go. And that's how I feel about that so far. I don't. I am in walking distance to most of the places I need to go, and haven't used the bus much. But it is an essential part of the community, and I think it's obviously a disservice for it to not be working for most people.
2: Now, uh, let's take last issue here uh, is the F-35s, the uh, fighter jets that are going to be touching down in Madison a little bit later this spring. How do you feel about the F-35s here in Madison?
4: Um, They're really expensive. (laughs) They're probably $9.1 million. And I don't mind them. I think that, you know, they could come to Madison, it'll be great, but they are pretty unsustainable as far as fighter jets, And but my parents are ex-military, and I don't really have a strong stance on the planes touching down.
2: Now, I want to take a look at uh, your specific district, District 4 there. Uh, you mentioned housing there. What are a few other key issues facing your specific district? What have you heard from potential constituents?
4: Currently, so I've started um, trying to email all the small businesses in my district about Because there's a lot, they are more concentrated in District 4 than most of the other districts. We have about 104 businesses in District 4 compared to about 20 to 30 in the other districts. They haven't gone back to me so far, but I know that they've been struggling post-COVID and the city needs to do as much as we can to keep small business in Madison and keep employment rates high and business owners happy. So I hope to hear more back from them because I don't want to take stances on something I Don't know a ton about yet, but I do know there's been some supply issues in Madison and we're working through it, you know, 2023, but I think that we could do more to help them and work with them because they are like the lifeblood of what keeps us running.
2: Samantha, sometimes things on the council get a little bit complicated, uh, especially there's a lot of issues. Well, let's say there's an issue where some of your constituents, they want to see a policy happen while other constituents in your district want to see the exact opposite happen. Uh, how would you handle that situation?
4: I think Mostly, I mean, a lot of city issues do you share common goals and the disputes are over how to implement them, like, especially in housing, like whether we uh, prioritize development over the people or it's about finding a balance when deciding policy. And I think when you have disputes, it's often over things that people actually agree on. And I think you just have to go issue to issue and try and find the most efficient thing that positively impacts the most people and is the most plausible for the city at the time.
2: Samantha, do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to share?
4: I'm new uh, to politics, obviously, and I'm I'm quite young. I'm 20 years old compared to like Mike, who's been on city council for 28 years. And I'm totally open to any communication. You can reach me. My contact is everywhere on the internet and on my website, com and, I want to include everyone's voices as much as I can, as city and local government is about everyone. Not, I mean, I have to represent everyone, not just myself. So I encourage as much reaching out in direction as possible, and I want to serve you the best I can.
2: I've been talking with Samantha Givich, who will be running in the February primary election for the Aldersee in District 4. That primary election takes place on February 21st, with the 2023 spring general election taking place on April 4th. Samantha, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me
4: today. Of course. Thank you for having me.
1: Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to The Local News on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, Here is Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining
0: us. At the beginning of this year, the state of Oregon became the first in the nation to allow the adult use of psilocybin. The naturally occurring psychedelic has been shown to have significant promise for treating severe depression, PTSD, and even alcohol and drug addictions. That's partly thanks to research at UW-Madison, which has been conducting clinical trials into it since 2014. On last week's 8 O'Clock Buzz, Friday host Andy Moore spoke with doctors Cody Wenther and Christopher Nicholas, two psilocybin researchers at UW, to find out what they are learning about the drug. Walk
5: us through the history of of psilocybin, exactly where it comes from, how it's derived, how long it's been used medically, spiritually, culturally, that kind of thing.
6: So, as you pointed out earlier, the primary source of psilocybin comes from mushroom species that people call magic mushrooms, and... Individuals, particularly in Central and and Mesoamerica, have documented use of these mushrooms and psilocybin for sacramental and and ceremonial purposes Mm -hmm. going back uh, for millennia, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, famously, uh, in the Oaxaca region of Mexico, Maria Sabina was. Uh, one of the individuals who was um, using these compounds for ceremonial and sacramental purposes. And through her work, the uh, United States kind of became aware of this as she, she provided her information to individuals uh, in, in the U.S. who are amateur mycologists. And the story continued on from there.
5: i staying with you, Dr. Winther. <laughs> you mentioned mushrooms, as we, we both did. What is this, the source of modern-day psilocybin, the kind you use in the lab?
6: Yeah. So there are some companies who are trying to cultivate mushrooms in, in registered facilities and then extract the psilocybin from that. But that's actually the the minority um, right now for the, the source of psilocybin in the lab. The compound itself is, is actually fairly similar to serotonin, which is um, one of the major targets that that's changed by the use of psilocybin. And so there are uh, labs, including labs here in central Wisconsin, south-central Wisconsin at the USONA Institute who synthesize the, the psilocybin using chemical techniques in registered facilities at very high purity up to the standards of the FDA and and Hmm. actually a great deal of the over 100 ongoing clinical trials uh, with psilocybin. Many of them are sourcing their their psilocybin here from from South Central Wisconsin.
5: Dr. Nicholas, meanwhile here in Wisconsin for nearly 10 years you've you've overseen controlled adult trials with psilocybin. What was the first one And, and what did you learn?
7: Yeah. So our first trial was focused on looking at the pharmacokinetics. So how the body processes the psilocybin and also the safety and psychological experience. And unique to that study, we looked at doses of psilocybin that were most higher than typically used in clinical trials now. And one of the thinking, the thinking there was one, we want to see what can be safe and where we can reach sort of limits, but also we predicted that certain conditions may need higher doses for clinical benefits. So we found that higher doses were well-tolerated, safe, achieved similar effects that we see in these moderate to high doses that are used in clinical trials. And from that data, we started to build a platform focused
5: on applying that knowledge to um, our focus, which is addiction and mental health. I want to get to the afterward in a minute, but let's stay with the in the during because I know that counseling is connective tissue all through the process before, during Mm -hmm. and after important, important element. But counseling someone in the midst of a psilocybin experience must for you as a clinician must be a completely other dimension than sitting across the room and counseling someone in a traditional mind state and a traditional counselor, therapist and and, uh, participant relationship. What, how does your role change and and, and and how do you have to be on the ball? So what we're there to do, and it's a really great question, is that we're there to
7: hold space, create what we call like a safe, supportive container. We we want to create the, and optimize the conditions in the room to allow them to understand and to ex- connect to their experience. You know, So we try not to be very actively influential in the experience or but we want to be actively monitoring and present. You know, in traditional therapy, there's a whole range of how therapists work with a patient. Sometimes they're very active, sometimes they're Mm -hmm. not. But, you know, we're really trying to help them make the most meaning out of their experience so if we do if we are more directive we're actually just helping them direct into their experience only time we get really like active in another way is if they're having an adverse or challenging Mm -hmm. experience that they need a little bit more emotional support with
5: but if things are going the way you would want and it sounds like it, it happens quite a bit it sounds like that you're kind of the good Samaritan in the room
7: we're very much there and aligned and really hoping helping them you know, be present with their experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now the clinical lens comes in when there starts to be experiences that feel overwhelming for them, or they, they get outside of their window of tolerance. So we can, we know we are trained to really help them come back and feel like they have some sort of a sense of choice
5: and agency. Let's talk about the after. And I'm still with you, Dr. Nicholas, how is one available mentally after this experience and to what as a as compared with what they were available to prior to mm-hmm. the experience
7: well I think the aim of these experiences is that we can really help them make meaning out of their experience and kind of organize it in a way that translates to changes in their life and what we really see when people have these experiences in these controlled research conditions is an openness an emotional availability less self-judgment so more openness to their experience they're more curious and so we really try to harness that and make use of that sort of state that they're in. that generally last for days, if not weeks longer. So that could be underscored by, you know, a construct we call psychological flexibility, the ability to strive and achieve and um, obtain one's goals based on their values, even if they are feeling distressed or run into challenges, being able to navigate and adapt to life. So we're really trying to use those experiences to
5: cultivate, that sort of pattern for them. So it seems yeah. so oh I don't, I don't want to abuse convenient words but it seems so immediate.
7: There is sort of a pivotal shift that can happen for some. I, I want to under I want to underscore that this work is not a silver bullet. There's I yeah. think we can create opportunities yeah. for change but without the right support and scaffolding from the therapist or from whatever practice it doesn't have to be therapy that is supportive of the person and who they are. Yes, and they can integrate the experience. That's really going to what lead hmm. to hopefully beneficial outcomes.
5: Doctor Winther, talk about the specific kinds of results that you've seen so far with psilocybin uh, data-wise.
6: Yeah, so at UW, I think we're fortunate to really have a great diversity of researchers who are looking at the use of psilocybin and other psychoactive substances from preclinical uh, up through clinical. So we have work uh, in rodents where we are seeing that, uh, for example, the uh, sort of stress that's induced by the experience, that emotional intensity that you're talking about. Certainly in the the mice, we can't see whether they are crying out for mommy or whether they are having a a particular type of experience, but we can measure their sort of biological stress response. And what we're seeing there is this sort of acute stress actually may be helpful in alleviating uh, longer-term anxiety. And going into people, others have certainly observed that there is this sort of acute stress response paired with the longer-term um, release of that. And and so that's one of the interesting things we're looking at now and that we've seen. Other results on the, the human side that uh, Chris and, and others have been deeply involved in and leading are uh, studies with, with the investigation of psilocybin for, for major depressive uh, disorder and now moving into substance use disorders, things like opiates and and methamphetamine, and both at UW and and elsewhere. The results have really shown that uh, with one or two doses of psilocybin, you get reductions in measures of anxiety, uh, of depression, and uh, even in one of the larger trials coming out recently for alcohol use disorder, reductions in days of of heavy drinking. Um, And so I think, as Chris mentioned, uh, this isn't a silver bullet, but so far... Very promising results on those fronts. Dr.
5: Winther, what are the risks of undergoing psilocybin uh, as a therapy?
6: Yeah, the the I think most significant risks that have been identified are are on the psychological side rather than on the, the physical side. Mm-hmm. There are people who have adverse psychological reactions, distress. This seems to occur in somewhere between a quarter and a third of people where they're acutely feeling like they need some of that support if we look uh, broadly across groups. The other risks, uh, if you're using outside the context of a clinical trial, are that individuals may not have the support that they need and may actually have a a very negative experience that's not uh, supported and and leads them to have a longer term negative psychological consequence. On the the physical side of things, relatively mild. uh, Mm Outcomes, But headache is, is quite regular and people often have kind of a transient or a short-term elevation in heart rate and blood pressure. So these are the types of things we see quite regularly. But I think it's really important to underscore the notion that there, there are psychological risks attendant with the use of these compounds and that a lot of the control in these, these clinical trial settings is, is there to help. Uh, Mitigates that risk in particular.
0: That was 8 O'Clock Buzz Friday host Andy Moore talking with Cody Wenther and Christopher Nicholas, two researchers at the UW Transblis- Transdisciplinary Center for Research for Psychoactive Substances. You can find the full interview online at wortfm.org.
1: At the Dane County Humane Society's Animal Rehab Center, winter means one thing, the return of junkos. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg breaks down the different types of juncos across the country and what makes them so special.
8: Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to talk about the dark-eyed junco. I bet there's a lot of people out there that have dark-eyed juncos on their list of favorite birds, uh, mine included, because they are such cool little sparrows. Uh, Yes, they are a sparrow species. Sometimes people think junco, and they think, oh, that's their own kind of, I guess you could say species type, or maybe their own category, but really the juncos are in the sparrow family. The one thing I love about juncos the most is that there's so much variety. I can go anywhere around the United States and find different types of colors of junco, different types of subspecies of junco, and they're all just a little bit different. And in Wisconsin, we're definitely used to seeing what we call the slate-colored junco, which is the typical darkish black to gray coloration with white. And if you ever notice that you've got these little birds that are just kind of chipping in the ground, they're just doing this little chip, 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 and they've got a flash of white from their tail as they fly off. Typically, I think of that as being the junco. They have these beautiful beautiful... beautiful white spots on their tail on the outer feathers so usually the outer three feathers that you can just see fan out so beautifully you might just see it as a quick just flash and it's just like oh it's all of a sudden kind of like when you look at a northern flicker and you see the white rump spot you kind of know oh it's a flicker well the white tail is kind of like oh that's a junco and they're usually very small i like to think of them as the itty bitty sparrow species that have they're dainty they're not tiny like a chipping sparrow But they are more, I don't know what you want to necessarily say, but they've just got this beautiful, delicate look, especially with their bills, which are usually pink. They have these cute little round button eyes. They're just... Honestly, I just love them so much I could go on forever about how much I love juncos. But the slate-colored junco might sound kind of boring, having a dark gray and the black and the white. But did you know that there are a bunch of other subspecies? So we have those that are considered in the white-winged group. So they've got white on the wings. There's the Oregon junco, which is pretty rare to be coming in here into Wisconsin, or the brown-backed group. So a lot of juncos, they're mixtures of some gray and the brown pink-sided group, which is really neat. I've never gotten to see one of those in the wild. The gray-headed group, which is a darker, very dark gray head, but has a distinctive kind of neckline. And then there's the red-backed group. So, how many juncos is that? It's just, it's so many different species. Well, the different subspecies, we can kind of break it down by area of the United States. So, there's a really great audubon.org article that was actually written in 2019, just talking about the different types of subspecies and and how they look so different, but there's actually like five different western varieties. So those are the the Oregon juncos the ones that have more of the pink on the side and then the brown on the back. There's actually a range map uh, in this article, and again Audubon.org. Just search dark-eyed junco, and you'll definitely find it. But then we've got the the really kind of dark gray ones, the slate-colored juncos being a lot further north and east. So there is overlap, though, especially because we're looking at different mountain ranges that might split the species, especially Western versus versus the Eastern species. But the, the five kind of main Western coast ones, and then you've got more like six to seven, I guess you could say, mid to Eastern, and then there are some that are, more southern down into Mexico or Central America that are there. So that's it's really neat to be able to look at the ones that are like the Guadalupe junco, the Baird's junco, just a lot of different variety. And mostly it's going to come down to color change because really they behave kind of similarly. They are seed-eating birds. They also love to eat bugs. So our juncos that we have in wildlife rehabilitation here at the Humane Society are huge lovers of crickets. So they are just hopping around on the ground eating as many tiny crickets as we can possibly get give them, which we do have one currently in care, slate-colored junco, beautiful bird, uh, undergoing uh, rehabilitation after it hit a window. It also had a toe fracture and a couple of other things, so still working through that. But really, the juncos are when I say subspecies, it doesn't mean that they are not related to each other. Like, there's still some genetic overlaps. Uh, it just means that they're able to breed with each other still. So there might be some sort of range that they might fly into, kind of a close-range neighbor, and it might be a slightly different subspecies because they look different. But they are still juncos, which means that they can still create little junco babies. So really, it's just changes in genes that kind of cause the difference in coloration, just as I would explain it for the Eastern grey squirrel, which you might see in colours of black or red or grey or even white if there's a lack of melanin. So Kind of similar things there. But anyways, in total, 15 different subspecies of dark-eyed junco in North America. Some of them grouped more of those eastern to western, like I said, the five western, etc. But they can be found pretty much everywhere in the United States. It's just pretty amazing to be able to see them, uh, regardless of where you are. So we really enjoy dark-eyed juncos just for the diversity, but also having them in the state of Wisconsin just seems like it's, it's just like our winter bird. It's something that always strikes me as hey we're in the middle of winter because the juncos are here and you'll see them out and about and especially being really vocal on days where it's warm the snow might still have some cover on the ground but as it starts to warm up you really hear them get really vocal and they like to live in large groups so here at the humane society we actually have juncos that just litter the property honestly in our you know around our outdoor enclosures and things all throughout the year and we've had them for a long time they really like the different vegetation that's on the property, and we've been doing a, a lot of different efforts to you know, plant different native species, and that has, I think, helped attract a lot more birds to the area, which is great for our patients in rehabilitation because then they can hear the natural birds around them, uh, ones that are healthy and wild, but maybe... Especially when you get to springtime, we've got those young ones coming in, and it's really good for them to hear natural sounds and you know species that would be out there that they can kind of help mimic and, and listen to. It, it just really helps with their, their development as young ones. So anyways, the, the dark-eyed junco is what we're talking about today, uh, seed-dating sparrow species with 15 different subspecies here in Wisconsin, mostly gray little bit of brown, more brown on the females, but otherwise look for that pink bill, the pink legs, the little button black eyes. They're so sweet. And uh, listen for them out in the wild if you can hear those little chips. And maybe take a moment to go on to the, uh, the different Merlin apps or, or other sound archives that you have to listen to a Junko call. I think it's very clear. It's very... It's not flute-like, but piano-like is the way I like to think of it. It's kind of like water tinkling, but very staccato, I guess. And it it sounds very beautiful. So Junko's probably one of our favorite species, very common in rehabilitation here. We've released quite a few already this year at the Humane Society, and we are still rehabilitating a couple of them in care right now. So thanks for listening here today on WORT. We appreciate your support. And give us a call if you ever find an animal in need of help at 608-287-3235. And otherwise, this has been Wildlife
0: Weekly. Tonight is the final edition of Radio Astronomy here on the WORT Local News. But don't worry, host Andrew Nines says that space isn't going anywhere, and he breaks down everything scientists believe we are going to learn about it in 2023. Plus, the Radio Astro crew has some exciting events planned for this year, and Andrew is ready to share them now.
9: Good evening, and welcome to Radio Astronomy. My name is Andrew Nine, and tonight, in our final regular episode of Radio Astronomy, I'd like to talk about some of the space events we're looking forward to most in this new year. To begin the new year, Earth is being visited by an old friend this month. In early 2022, astronomers discovered the comet C22E3 ZTF inside the orbit of Jupiter and rapidly approaching the Sun. This comet made its closest approach to the Sun on January 12th, and then its closest approach to Earth will be around February 2nd. Even though we just discovered this comet, it's been by this way before. Astronomers estimate that the orbital period of this comet, the time it takes to make one complete orbit around the Sun, is about 55,000 years. That means that the last time Comet E3 came by Earth, it was in the middle of the last Ice Age. If you want to catch a glimpse of this comet like your very very distant ancestors did keep an eye on the early morning sky towards the north when the moon is dim and e3 should be just visible to the naked eye if you have a pair of binoculars or a small telescope the view will be spectacular 2023 also has a lot of exciting space missions in store in april of this year we are looking forward to the launch of the jupiter icy moons explorer or juice for short juice operated by the European Space Agency, will then travel for about eight years before arriving at Jupiter in July of 2031, then proceeding on to the moons Ganymede, Callisto, and Europa in December of 2034. Each of these three moons are known to harbor large amounts of water ice, and may even have subsurface oceans of liquid water, ideal for life. JUICE will study these icy moons to learn more about the conditions of the ice on these worlds, as well as their deep interiors. In the case of Europa, the best candidate we know for life outside of Earth, JUICE will also study the surface chemistry and look for molecules associated with life on Earth. Later this year in September, we can also look forward to the return of OSIRIS-REx. We've talked about this mission before on Radio Astronomy, but to recap, OSIRIS-REx was launched by NASA back in 2016 to study and return samples from the asteroid Bennu. Bennu was chosen because it is extremely old, dating all the way back to the formation of our solar system. OSIRIS-REx gathered a sample of material from the ancient surface of Bennu in October 2020, and will drop off that sample to Earth in September of this year before continuing on to the asteroid Apophis for more observations. The Bennu sample will parachute down into the Utah desert, much like the Stardust sample return mission in 2006. Scientists will then carefully study the Bennu sample, which will give us the best picture yet of the building blocks of our solar system. In October, another exciting asteroid mission will be launched. That's when the mission Psyche will take off and begin its journey to the asteroid of the same name. Psyche is a particularly interesting asteroid to study because it is absolutely massive, about 140 miles across, and it's made mostly out of iron. That suggests that the asteroid Psyche may have once been part of the iron core of a planet that was present in the early days of the solar system before it got shattered by collisions with other bodies as the rest of the solar system formed. Recent studies, however, have cast some doubt on that hypothesis, suggesting instead that it might be pristine, unmelted material from the beginning of the solar system. Once the Psyche Orbiter arrives in 2029 and begins detailed observations of the asteroid, we will have better answers as to the history of this fascinating asteroid and others like it. Last, but certainly not least, on October 14th, users in southwestern North America will be treated to a spectacular event, a Ring of Fire Solar Eclipse. Also known as an annular eclipse, this happens when the moon passes in front of the sun, but it is too far away from earth to produce a total solar eclipse. This means that a ring of the sun's disk will be visible around the moon as it passes between us, producing its namesake ring of fire effect. This also means that viewers in the path of the eclipse won't be plunged into darkness like they would in a total solar eclipse. For that, we'll have to wait until April 2024. In the meantime, stock up on some shiny new solar eclipse glasses and enjoy the show safely. Of course, those are just the events we know will take place this year. A new year means countless more exciting discoveries that we have no idea about right now. So keep your eyes on the sky and get ready for a whole new year of exciting space news. As I mentioned before, this is our last regular broadcast of Radio Astronomy. You may hear from us again from time to time on the Perpetual Notion Machine, which airs on Thursdays at 7 p.m. In the meantime, we are incredibly excited to announce the start of Astronomy on Tap in Madison. Astronomy on Tap is a nationwide program that brings astronomers and their work into the community for nights of engaging presentations, games, music, and more. We'll have our first edition of Astronomy on Tap Madison at the end of February. Keep an eye on the Washburn Observatory Twitter feed, at WashburnObs, at Washburn, OBS, at Washburn OBS, for more information. We have also started an Instagram page, AOTMadison, where we will post updates about upcoming events. Keep an eye out also for posters along State Street and all around the downtown area in early February, with more information about the first astronomy on TAP Madison. This is Andrew Nine, signing out from Radio Astronomy. Thank you to all of you for tuning in these past 10 years. We hope to see you all in February, and as always, have a stellar week.
1: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's live local news at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Andy Moore with the 8 o'clock buzz, Jackie Sandberg, and for the final time, the Radio Astronomy crew. Thank you, crew members.
0: Dave and engineered this show.
1: Nate House produced this newscast.
0: And Charlie Pittman is a news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast and subscribe at major audio on-demand sources.
1: And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with Enrique Show Patio. Good night.